I absolutely love the old hymns of the church. And you know, every time I sing a hymn, I'm often reminded of a pastor who was ministering at a local country church. And you see, he was very concerned that members of his congregation were given to heavy drinking. And so he wanted to address the issue immediately. And so he decided to preach a very powerful sermon. And this is how he ended his sermon. He said, if I had all the beer in this world, I would dump it in the river. And then he said, if I had all the wine in this world, I would dump it in the river. And finally, with all the energy that he had left, he cried out. He said, if I had all the whiskey in this world, I'd dump it in the river. And then he sat down. His worship leader got up and he said, for a closing song, let us sing hymn number 357, Shall We Gather at the River? <laughs> you know, it really is a distinct privilege and an honor for me to be here this morning. And I want to thank God for this opportunity he's given me to share his word with you. You know, it's been a wonderful relationship, friendship with Dave. I've known him for about a year. And I have to tell you, he's been a blessing in my life. He's been praying, he's been encouraging, and he's really been there as we continue to meet on an ongoing basis for lunch and so on. And I've been really blessed. And I'm sure that he's a blessing to all of you here as well. And uh, as we get into his word, it is my prayer that as we meditate on the word of God, that we'll come to a greater understanding of the kind of God he is and the kind of people that he wants us to be. But before we delve into his word, let's just close our eyes for a moment and look to him in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy in our lives. We thank you for this place. We thank you for each and every one here. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty grave. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And we thank you for what you want to do in and through our lives. And so we commit this time into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You see, Dr. Radhakrishnan, a prominent Hindu philosopher, said something very perceptive about Jesus. He said between John the Baptist and Jesus, there is a difference. Between John the Baptist and Jesus, there is a difference. John, he said, was a reformer. What do reformers do? Reformers take the value systems that are already resident within a given culture or society and call its people to reorient their priorities. But, said Dr. Radhakrishnan, who was not a Christian, he was a Hindu, he said Jesus was a regenerator. Jesus was a regenerator. What do regenerators do? Regenerators bring in values that a society or culture in and of itself is incapable of producing and call its people to a new dimension of living. They call its people to a new dimension of living. If we as the church... If we as the community of the redeemed, if we as the people of God are truly a called people, then we need to exemplify. We need to live out the virtues and the values of what E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary, called the unshakable kingdom and the unchanging person. The unshakable kingdom and the unchanging person. How will this liberating power of the gospel transform the lives of individuals? of families, 
of communities and of societies today. If we truly are a called people, how should we then live? Pastor Dave told me that you've been meditating on Ephesians and about hearing from God. I just want to spend the next few moments talking about what it is we need to do. What, what are the realities that need to be exemplified in our lives if we are hearing from God? How do we live a Christ-centered or what I call a Christocentric life in the contemporary day in which we live? If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. Let me quickly read it for you. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, at three o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You see, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in Acts chapter 2, they were in one place and in one accord. Peter addressed the Jews, and 3,000 souls were converted to the glory of God. Chapter 2 is a glorious chapter. Life was experienced like never before. People were praising God from morning till night, and the sensations and experiences were anything but common. But chapter 3, chapter 3 begins with Peter and John walking in the common places where others were as they went up to the temple. You see, there will be times of intense religious and spiritual experiences within the life of the church, but the norm, the norm for the church of Christ is in the common places of this world. The uncommon inspiration and vision of the Pentecost needs to be translated into common virtue as you and I go out into a world in need, a world in which people are living lives of quiet desperation. Let me just make a preliminary comment before I get into the content of the message. Peter and John were going up to the temple, exemplifying a constant engagement with the Christ of history. They went up to the temple, exemplifying a constant engagement with the Christ of history. You see, the early disciples did not spurn religious customs and traditions. History and religious associations meant something to them. The disciples the apostles, the early church fathers, and other great men of faith revered custom and tradition without subscribing to traditionalism. And here's the difference, as someone has pointed it out. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. 
Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. You see, tradition in and of itself can never generate or sustain truth. But you and I need to realize, in a world that is constantly changing, in a world that is post-everything, that the church is a historical institution, and that Christianity has a historical center, and there needs to be a greater synthesis between the past, the present, and the future, for you and I worship a God who has intervened in history and infused all of it with meaning. He has intervened in history and infused all of it with meaning. You see, we can undertake various contemporary ways and methodologies of doing things in Christian gatherings, during our worship service, during Christian concerts, and whatever else it is we do. We can undertake various contemporary ways and methodologies of doing things, but we need to be careful. We need to be careful. We need to undertake methodologies that complement, that complement rather than confuse the truth of the content of the gospel. You see, things don't always have to be novel and bright and entertaining in order to engage the believer and to invoke interest in the unbeliever. Traditional things, customary things, regular things like Peter and John were doing going up to the temple can be undertaken can be undertaken with a deep sense of spirituality and significance. Peter and John were not going as formal worshippers. They went filled with the Holy Spirit. Christ was the lamb at the altar. He was the theme of the Psalms, and he was shown on the vestments of the high priest, and they worshipped him in spirit and in truth within the context, within the context of their traditions. In our attempts to be relevant in our contemporary world, and we should try everything possible to be relevant, but in our attempts to be relevant in our contemporary world, let's be sure to maintain, to maintain some of the traditions of the church, or we'll end up losing our sense of identity and destiny in the process. And the first thing that we see, the first truth that we see as we read Acts chapter 3 verse 1 is this. There was a consummate embodiment of Christ. The embodiment of Christ. Acts chapter 3 verse 1 says, Peter and John went together. Peter and John went together. Do you know why the early church had the power that it had? It wasn't because they were in the right place. It wasn't because they had the right position. And it certainly wasn't because they had the right people. The early church had the power that it had because they had the right relationships. The right relationships. First and foremost with God himself and secondly with each other as they embodied Christ in their midst. People who saw them saw Christ at work in and through them. Acts chapter 2 says they were together and had all things, all things in common. You see, Peter and John were very different men. Peter was young, and he was brass. John was a dreamer, and he was a poet. And they probably had their differences. They probably had their differences. They didn't agree on everything. But you see, there was an intrinsic beauty in and through Christ that provided the possibility of love and grace and mercy and especially forgiveness to exist between them. They were both sinners in need of a Savior and had found their answer in Christ, and they embodied him in their midst. Do you know what the problem with the church today is? Instead of loving each other, instead of being gracious to each other, 
instead of being kind and compassionate and forgiving, we end up comparing ourselves to each other. We compare ourselves to each other based on our relative moralities, forgetting that when compared against the very holiness of God, we all fall short of his glory. Two brothers ravaged a particular village, and they did every dirty, stinking thing that you can think of, and the villagers absolutely hated them for it. Suddenly, one of the brothers unexpectedly died. The surviving brother went to the local church pastor and asked him to eulogize his dead brother. And he looked at the pastor and he basically said, Look, I know that the church needs a lot of money. You've got a lot of repairs to be done. I'm willing to give you a large sum of money. Just conduct the funeral. All you need to do is refer to my dead brother as a saint. Just refer to him as a saint. I'll give you a large sum of money. The pastor really didn't want to do it, but finally he agreed. On the day of the funeral, the entire village had gathered out of curiosity. They wanted to know what the pastor was going to say and what he was going to do. And so the pastor went through the usual rituals. And then he went and stood right in front of the body of the dead brother. And he said, pointing to the body, The man you see lying here was a cheat. He was a scoundrel. He was a good for nothing. Nothing good ever came out of his life. He did every dirty, stinking thing that you can think of. But compared to his brother standing here, he was a saint. Malcolm Muggeridge, the great English writer, once said that sin is the most empirically verifiable of all facts. You see, people may talk about racial issues and cultural issues and economic issues and social issues, and these are very real issues that you and I need to deal with, that the church needs to deal with. But the basic fundamental problem of humanity the basic issue, that which breaks us at the deepest levels of conscience and common sense, the problem is still sin, and the answer is still Christ. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, writes that sin makes us less than we were meant to be. John Wesley said that sin alienates us from God. The Bible says that while, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he's looking to you and he's looking to me to extend that same forgiveness to others by embodying him in our lives. You see, God wants to make you and I instruments of his peace in this desperate and dying world that needs to know him for who he is. As St. Francis of Assisi once prayed, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is sorrow, your joy. There are many, many ways in which we can embody Christ. Let me just mention one because of the lack of time. We can embody him by being forgiving to others. But that's a very difficult thing to do, especially when you're on the freeways. You see, words are spoken, intentions are made known, and immediately, immediately that bitterness begins to take root in your heart and mind. The need to get even with that person or that family, to let them know how you felt and how you were violated. But God is looking into your heart this morning, and he's looking into my heart, and he's saying to us, if you're truly saturated by the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of my son, then experience it and extend it to others in your life. Let it touch the life of another. Embody me. Embody me.
two friends were walking in the desert. And at some point in their journey, they got into an argument. And one of the friends slapped the other on the face. The one who got slapped was very sad. And he wrote in sand, today, my best friend slapped me. They kept walking till they came to an oasis. And they both decided to go in for a swim. And the one who had been slapped began drowning. And his friend saved him. Once he had recovered from near drowning, he wrote on a slab of stone, Today, my best friend saved me. And the friend who had both slapped him and saved him asked him why he had written in sand when he'd been slapped and why he had engraved it on stone when he'd been saved. And his other friend replied, Because when somebody hurts us, we should write it in sand where the winds of forgiveness may erase it away. But when somebody does something good in our lives and is a blessing to us, we should engrave it in stone where it may endure forever. God wants you this morning. My dear brother, my dear sister, God wants you. God wants you to write your hurts in sand so that the winds of forgiveness may erase it away as you embody the very character and the person of Christ in your life. And then as you read on, you see Peter looking at the lame beggar and he says, look upon us. He doesn't say, look upon me. He says, look upon us. He gives full recognition to John and validates his ministry. In a community where there is love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, in a community that embodies Christ, there are no big eyes or little U's. There are no big eyes or little U's, for we live for his sake and for his glory and for the sake of each other. As the old hymn reminds us, Others, yes, Lord, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live for thee. I wonder this morning, as we've gathered here, I wonder if we can look at a desperate and dying world and say to them, look upon us. Look upon us. We're a fellowship. We're a congregation where the gospel is not only heard, but where the gospel is seen. We're a church where the gospel is not only proclaimed, but where the gospel is actually embodied. I believe it was Gypsy Smith who once said that there are actually five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And he said many will never read the first four. Let our lives be an embodiment of Christ. If you hear from him, embody him. Secondly, we see the empowerment in Christ. Please look at that passage again. We see the empowerment in Christ. The lame beggar had been sitting at that gate for many years. On this particular occasion, he's being brought to the gates. And on seeing Peter and John, he cries out to them. And the Bible says that Peter, when he heard those cries, fastened his eyes upon him. I love that term in the King James Version. Peter fastened his eyes upon him. You see, a characteristic feature of Christianity is that it fastens its eyes on the sick and the destitute of this world. Science may fasten its eyes on inanimate matter and art on the gate beautiful, but Christianity fastens its eyes on the poor cripple. Science may seek out the mysteries of the cosmos or the universe and art its beauties, but Christianity, Christianity seeks out its ills and offers an unquenchable hope. And then Peter begins to speak. And he speaks some of the most beautiful words recorded in all of Scripture. He looks at the lame beggar and he says, Silver and gold I have none, but such as I have I give thee. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
By telling the lame beggar what he did not have, Peter inevitably heightened the value of what he did have. I can almost feel what the lame beggar must have felt at that moment. Peter, if you didn't have silver or gold, why didn't you just pass on by and leave me alone, unnoticed and unchallenged? Don't you see me? I'm a man destined to suffer, a life of agony and pain and distress. Peter, despair for me is not just a moment. It is a lifetime. Why didn't you just pass on by and leave me alone? We've all known people who've been suffering for a long time in their lives. If you spoke to them in the first year, there is some concern, but there is still a glimmer of hope. But after five years, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, even the most fiery spirit will be quenched. There is no hope left. Maybe you know someone in your life, a friend, a neighbor, a family member. It may not be a sickness. It may be financial. It may be a loss of meaning, a sense of depression, a sense of loneliness. Maybe you're experiencing that in your own life. And you've tried everything possible to turn things around. You've tried to rectify the situation and nothing has happened. And you've begun to wonder, does God really see me where I am? Does he really care? This man had been that way for 40 years. 40 long years. And along comes Peter talking about rising up and walking. If you and I were the lame beggar, what would be our response? Think about it. What would be your response? Well, the logical question to ask is, how can this be? How can this be in my life? Maybe in someone else's life. Can it really come to pass in my life? Can it come to pass in your life? How can this be? How can this be? You see, that question was asked by a young woman in the Bible. It was asked by Mary. When the angel of the Lord appeared before Mary, and told her that she was going to be with child, Mary asked that question, how can this be in my life? I don't even see the possibility. How can it ever come to pass? How can this be? Do you remember the response of the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord said, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. The angel of the Lord was essentially saying to Mary, Mary, as long as you live within a paradigm in which you are the frame of reference, what I've decreed into your life will not only seem improbable, but quite impossible. But when there is a paradigm shift and God becomes the frame of reference, he will redefine the possibilities and the impossibilities in your life. For in the economy of God, the possibilities always outweigh the impossibilities. For in him, by him, through him, and because of him, all things all things become possible for you. The maker of heaven and earth, the alpha and the omega, the eternal now, is able to accomplish all that concerns you, for nothing is impossible with God. Peter was essentially saying to the lame beggar, I come to you in the name that is above every name, a name that not only has life-giving power, but resurrection power. And when God invades your life, and the spirit of his son flows through every crippled faculty of your body. You will not only be healed, but be made whole in the totality of who you are. For he's able to do more than you can ever ask or imagine. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up, 
rise up and walk. Pope Innocent IV is reputed to have shown St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the early church fathers, all the riches of Rome. He said, look at everything that the church has accumulated over the centuries. And then the Pope said, the church is no longer in a condition to say, silver and gold, I have none. Look at everything that we have accumulated. The church is no longer in a condition to say, silver and gold, I have none. The wise Aquinas looked at the Pope and he said, that may be true, Holy Father, but neither is she in a condition to say to the lame beggar, rise up and walk. My dear brothers, my dear sisters, our power is not institutional. Our power is not political. Our power is not in our denomination. Our power is not in the kinds of buildings that we build or in the kinds of programs that we run. Our power is not in anything that we do or anything that we are. Our power is only and absolutely in the name of Jesus. John Newton, the slave trader who was saved by the grace of God, said, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ears. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away all his fears. Napoleon Bonaparte said, I know men, and Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person, there are no possible terms of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I conquered empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force, Christ alone, Christ alone conquered purely by the power of his love. William Leckie, the great historian, who was not a believer, wrote in his book, The History of European Morals from Augustus to Charlemagne, that the character of Jesus has not only the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that three short years of active life have done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and the exhortations of moralists. Christ is not one among other things. He is not one among other gods. He is not one among other philosophies. And he's not one among other options. He's the centerpiece of history and the hope of humanity. And there's power. There is power in his name. And that power has not changed because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he did 2,000 years ago, he's able to do in Covina, California this morning. He wants to empower you. He wants to empower your families, and he wants to empower this church. If you're hearing from God, embody him. Secondly, be empowered by him. And thirdly, finally and quickly, be enabled through Christ. The enablement that comes only through Christ. Please look at that passage again. As you read on, you see Peter stretching out his right hand and lifting up the lame beggar. And the Bible says that immediately, immediately, strength began to flow through his feet and ankle bones. I want you to notice something. Please notice something in that passage. The power was God's, but the hand was Peter's. The power was God's, but the hand was Peter's. God is looking for a Peter today. God is looking for a Peter today. A Peter who will go where he wants him or her to go. A Peter who will touch the untouchable, love the unlovable, and proclaim liberty to those who are captive. Enabling them to know the love of Christ in their lives. Father Damien, a Belgian priest, went to the island of Molokai back in the 1860s. 
And all the lepers in that region were quarantined there for fear that the disease might spread to others. Father Damien lived with them. He walked with them and talked with them. He ate with them and slept with them. And he took care of all their spiritual and emotional needs. One morning as he was getting ready for his morning devotions, he accidentally put his right foot into a bucket of boiling water and it scaled his feet badly, but he didn't feel a thing. And at that moment, he knew that the worst had come upon him. He had contracted leprosy. Every morning as the lepers gathered, he would look at them and address them as my dear lepers. On this particular morning, knowing what had happened to him, with tears in his eyes, he looked at them and addressed them as my fellow lepers. He died in the year 1889, and at the request of the Belgian government, his body was flown back to Belgium, but his right hand was severed from his body and sent back to Molokai, where it lays buried today. It is still there today as a testimony to the fact that here was a man who literally became the hands and feet of Jesus in the desperate and darkened world of lepers, enabling them to know the love of Christ in their lives. He wants us to enable others to know him. To go out into this world and to tell them that there is a creator who has created them. That there is a God who longs for an intimate relationship with them. To tell them you were not mass-produced. You didn't come about because of some unexplainable cosmic event. You were deliberately planned. You were specifically gifted and lovingly, lovingly positioned on this earth to be in communion with your Father. That's the heartbeat of the Christian. That is the mission of the church. To enable others to know him. The enablement that comes only through Christ. Embodiment. Empowerment enablement. Please look at that passage again. And as you read on, you see the lame beggar entering the temple with Peter and John walking, leaping and praising God. When the purpose and the promise of God comes to pass in the life of a person, it always converges and coalesces in worship. It always converges and coalesces in worship. Archbishop William Temple, the great man of God, a great man of prayer, a great man of worship, wrote these marvelous words. He said, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind by his truth, the purifying of the imagination by his beauty, the opening of heart to his love, and the submission of will to his purposes. All of this gathered up in adoration is the greatest expression of which we as human beings are capable. It always converges and coalesces in worship. Two set out to go to the temple. Three entered the temple. And my question to you this morning, my dear brother and my dear sister, is this. Who else, who else are you taking along with you in this journey of life? Who else are you impacting? Who else are you sharing Christ with? Who else are you taking along with you? in this journey of life. Embodiment, empowerment, and enablement. Can this become a reality in my life today? Yes, it can. Yes, it can. It can happen right here, right now, right where you're seated. But it happens only in and through Christ. The Bible says that apart from him, we can do nothing. And So let me just conclude by tying it all together with a story. You see, an old father and his son traveled the world over, collecting some of the most magnificent pieces of art. 
And the father loved his son very much. And they would walk through their estate or their mansion, looking at all of these art pieces and enjoying them together. Suddenly, the country that they were in went into a war, and the son had to go and defend his nation. The father reluctantly agreed. A couple of weeks later, he got a telegram notifying him that his son had been killed in the war. The father was absolutely heartbroken. He loved his son very much, and he was torn apart. He didn't know what to do. A couple of months passed, and there was a knock on the door. The father went and opened the door, and there was an injured soldier standing there. The injured soldier looked at the father, and he told him that he was his son's best friend. And he told the father how his son had sacrificed his own life on the battlefield to save his. He looked at the father, and he said, Sir, I don't do much in my life, but I am a painter, and I painted this picture for you, and I came here to give this to you. And he gave the father a wrapped package, and he left. The father unraveled the package to reveal a portrait of his own son. No one in the art world would consider it to be a masterpiece. In fact, it was actually pretty mediocre. But there was something in that painting that bore a striking resemblance to his son, and it became the father's most prized possession. In fact, if anyone came to his house, he would show them that painting first before they saw anything else. A couple of years passed. The father became very ill, and he died. And soon the announcement was made that there was going to be a big auction. All the paintings, along with the estate and the grounds, were going to be auctioned off. On the day of the auction, dignitaries and celebrities and art collectors from all over the world descended upon the mansion. The auctioneer went up to the podium and he said, we're going to begin, but there is a rule, there is a condition. By the will of the old father, we have to auction off the painting of his son first before we get to anything else. The crowds began to murmur and complain. No one wanted that worthless painting, but the auctioneer was resolute. He said, unless we sell the painting of his son, we won't get to anything else. And then he said, I'm going to start the bidding at $100. $100 for the painting of the old man's son. Who will take the son? Absolute pin drop silence. No one wanted that painting. Suddenly, that silence was broken by a voice at the back of the room. I'll give you $10 for it. It's all that I have, but I'll gladly give it to you to get that painting. Everyone turned towards the back of the room. And there was that injured soldier, barely able to stand, waving his $10 up in the air. The auctioneer smiled, and he said, All right, we'll begin the bidding at $10. $10 for the painting of the old man's son. Will anyone go higher? Silence yet again. The auctioneer waited for a moment, and then he said, $10 for the bidding of the old man's son. Going once, going twice, sold to the young man at the back of the auditorium. As the injured soldier was making his way to the front to pick up his painting, the auctioneer went back to the podium and he made another announcement. He said that the auction was over. What do you mean it's over? We demand an explanation, cried out the crowds. Well, it's very simple, said the auctioneer. You see, by the will of the father, he who bids on the painting of his son gets the entire gallery along with the estate and the grounds. Please hear me. He who got the son got everything that the father had to give. He who got the son got everything that the father had to give. When you and I come to God through his son, then we'll truly receive all that our heavenly father has to offer. Embodiment, empowerment, and enablement. As we hear from God, it is my prayer 
that he will help you, that he will help me to live a life that is pleasing in his sight and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you once again for your presence and we thank you for your word. We thank you because you're not just a God of history. You're the Christ of our present reality. Work in and through us, Lord. Help us to be a people who hear from you and then a people who embody you, a people who are empowered by you, a people who enable others to know you for your glory and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.